0: Thank you very much, Um, it's long been a, a standard trope in popular accounts of the First World War that the European states which mobilised for war in late July and early August 1914 thought that the war would be over by Christmas. So to put this in a specifically UK context, the British cabinet is alleged to have been shocked when Lord Kitchener, having been summoned off the boat as he was about to go back to Egypt, arrived and told them to plan for a war that would last three years. Um, I cannot find much evidence of that shock. Uh, And indeed, uh, the quick check which involved looking at uh, Asquith's letters to Venetia Stanley produced no such evidence. All Asquith wrote to her on 6th August 1914 on this particular point was, Kay is already throwing great energy into his job. Already today he has undertaken to raise another 100,000 regulars. So there's no mention here uh, of his belief that the war would last for three years. Um, And in some ways, of course, that absence of shock is exactly, I think, where the academic literature uh, on the war's origins and its outbreak has uh, has landed. It has now largely come to terms with precisely the opposite proposition, not that of a short war illusion, but a realisation that most of those in the know, particularly soldiers, uh, believed that the war would be long. Protracted, bloody, and so on. Certainly, Joff, Haig, and the Younger Molk had all said as much uh, in the lead up to the war or on its outbreak. So that prediction that the next European war would be long, whatever that might mean, I'll come to that point in a minute, had a well-established and unimpeachable pedigree. Uh, the Elder Molker, and you'll probably many of you be familiar with this. Uh, who was, for many, the greatest soldier of the recent past, uh, had uh, said in his last speech to the Reichstag in 1890 that it was very unlikely that a war could be settled by the defeat of a single enemy in one or two campaigns. As he said, uh, obviously citing historical precedents, it could very well become a seven years or even a 30 years war. Uh, And it's therefore unsurprising that when his nephew became Chief of the General Staff at the end of 1905 uh, and was interviewed by the Kaiser um, and the Kaiser asked him what the next war might look like he replied uh, in extraordinarily realistic and pessimistic terms. It will be a long, wearisome struggle with a country that will not be overcome until the whole national force is broken. Uh, In November 1912 he told the Prussian War Minister, we must prepare ourselves for a long campaign with numerous, tough, protracted battles until we defeat one of our enemies. And remember, of course, in 1914, Germany had more than one. And others in Germany agreed. Kolmar von von der Goltz, who by 1914 had retired, but we we, we recalled to service with the Ottoman Empire, and of course died in Iraq. Uh, and the author of an enormously influential book, um, uh, The Nation in Arms, Volken Waffen, uh, uh, said very similar things. And these people are not outliers, self-evidently, these are individuals uh, in the mainstream of military thought at the apex of their profession. Even if we look at the outliers, and the other person regularly cited here is Friedrich Engels, uh, a passionate and committed observer of all things military, Expressed themselves in very similar terms. Uh, Engels writing in 1887 anticipated long war if war were to come to Europe. So the question, in part of course, is if that is the case. If the professional consensus before 1914 was that the next European war would be long, why do they think it would be long? After all the wars of German (coughs) unification, the obvious immediately preceding Uh, example uh, had been characterized by their brevity. The first reason was that Europe was divided into two alliances Uh, and those alliances strengthened in their cohesion as the war approached and so looked increasingly likely to hold if there were war. The defeat of one state by another state would not end a coalition war. Remember that in 1870-71, Bismarck had restrained the elder Molke from his desire for a more protracted and punitive war against France, precisely because he feared the intervention of other powers, uh, particularly, of course, the intervention of Britain. In 1914, his nephew could take that intervention as largely a given. Secondly, the demands of war would ensure the mobilisation of the whole nation. Note that in the quotations I've just given you, uh, the younger Molke specifically talked about the nation. Colmar von der Goltz was writing about the nation in arms. Not just addressing the issue of the armed forces, of military and naval manpower, but also the issue of economic resources and the civilian workforce, at least implicitly. Not that either of them spelt that out in much detail. The populations of European countries were increasingly educated and literate. Compulsory primary education had ensured that. And as a consequence of that, uh, at least partially, uh, and I would argue increasingly in this sense too, wonderful word for historians to use, increasingly unspecified and just in blind growth, you know. Uh, don't want to anchor myself too much here in statistics. Um, but uh, in- increasingly political aware. politically aware. After all, you know, Europe by 1914, with the exception of Britain and Hungary, had universal male suffrage across most countries. And so, as citizens, they were more interested and more involved in a war's outcome than, had been, than were the case of subjects of autocratic uh, monarchs in 18th century states to take uh, an obvious uh, president. The greater the war, in other words, the greater the commitment. Uh, and the greater the pressure not to compromise on its outcome. This would be a hard war to end through negotiation, through compromise, precisely because you would be requiring the nation to be fully uh, imbra- involved in and implicit in the war itself. And the third issue, which of course was the issue that in many respects uh, Molka the Younger and Kolmol von der Goltz and others were concerned about, was what had happened on the battlefield itself and this is the subject of, of an article which i'm sure many of you know by Stig furster uh, which addresses uh, exactly the expectation in the prussian general staff that the next war would be long and that rested on what had happened in terms of tactical and technological change the so-called revolution in firepower uh, the development of breech loading magazine fed rifles the adoption of machine guns the appearance of above all of quick firing artillery which had emptied the battlefield had made battles more protracted think of Schlieffen's response to the reports from Manchuria and the Russo-Japanese war that battles didn't simply end in a day and so had given the defensive at least this was the presumption greater strength all that emphasis on the offensive in pre-1914 military uh, thinking is precisely a response to the reality which they recognized which was the offense was going to be jolly difficult um, so how could you get over Uh, the desire and the need to close with the enemy. And at sea, um, despite the evidence, if you like, of Suishima, talking of the examples from the Russo-Japanese War, uh, the dreadnought, uh, with its watertight compartments uh, and heavy armour, represented a vessel that was simply harder to sink. Um, It could not be as decisively dealt with um, as could... Uh, something constructed with a single hull, uh, and therefore much more vulnerable to a single hull. Battles in 1914, unlike, let's say, Waterloo in, 19, in 1815, might not be decisive. Uh, striking in the warnings of both Malkers were the references to repeated battles. Uh, and I'll come back to that point too. Now all of this was not only common sense, it was also, of course, extraordinarily accurate. Uh, The reality of the war of 1914-18, when first encountered, was indeed a shock to everybody. The reality of uh, actual death, destruction and the need to kill the enemy uh, were indeed profoundly shocking uh, to individuals and indeed to organisations that had only confronted this in theory. But the theory itself, its constituent and deterministic elements, uh, were perfectly well understood before 1914, and that seems to me one of the reasons why the statesmen who presided over the July crisis in 1914 were so gloomy. Um, They are depressed by the prospect of war. They behave as we would expect them to behave. Uh, Bedman-Holweg is a classic example of this, um, and Sir Edward Grey is another. Uh, That gloom rested on a core reality. They recognised that once the Balkan Wars had ceased to be limited and become a general European war, that in other words, once Austria-Hungary's desire to fight a limited war against Serbia, the so-called Third Balkan War, uh, once that spread across Europe, it would be protracted, it would be hard to stop, it would be totally unpredictable in its outcomes. Um, And both men uh, were therefore depressed. So for me, the really interesting and important question is not why the short war illusion, but rather different. Why did have, Why did men, sorry, get this right. I need to get the question phrase right. I thought it was a problem. The, the interesting important question is not why did men expect a short war, because I've just argued I don't think they did. The interesting and much more important question is instead why, given that most men indeed expected the war to be long did so many nonetheless persuade themselves uh, that it might just be short. Where does this come from? Uh, It is they and of course the numerous popular historians who have followed them who created the short war illusion. What caused the short war illusion to take hold given every indication to the contrary? Now the quick and easy answer and I think a very important answer is popular hope and public assumptions. Those who were wrested from their homes by the processes of national mobilization in July and August 1914, of course, wanted to get back home for Christmas. Um, that was exactly what they wanted to do, and then their families used that hope uh, to sustain them through the rites of departure and separation. And that was not a new phenomenon. Um, If you look, for example, at the French Revolutionary Armies of the 1790s, um, when France moved to the Levee en masse in 1793, they could mobilise a large army in the short term, but they really struggled to hold on to it in the long term. Desertion rates soared at the end of a single campaigning season. That's really what we're talking about in 1914, a single campaigning season. And those in particular who had harvests to bring in in the autumn went home. Um, They left the army. What is even more striking is that that's what happened in Britain during the South African War. Um, During the South African War, the British Empire, finding itself under greater pressure in South Africa than they thought it would be, uh, turned round and looked both to other parts of the empire, to Australia, New Zealand and Canada, uh, and and to uh, the volunteers and yeomanry at home, who had not hitherto served abroad. Those units that went from this country, from the volunteers, from the the predecessors, if you like, of the territorial army, served a single campaign. They didn't serve the duration of the war. The honor lay in fighting itself, not in seeing the war through to a satisfactory conclusion. They felt at the end of a year, just as the French peasant in 1793 felt, that they had done their bits. But as well as that popular expectation, I think there are two more professional, (coughs) structural reasons for the short war illusion taking hold. The first is economic orthodoxy. Uh, Economic orthodoxy in 1914 cast doubt on whether states could fight a long war with the full mobilisation of all its resources. Quite simply, the withdrawal of manpower from industry. Uh, and the focus of the state on the production of war goods rather than on other products will create a shortage of exports and so lead to a balance of payments crisis. Moreover, a war should, again in the view of economic orthodoxy, at least in Britain, which had an effective system of taxation, be paid for out of tax receipts. A war paid simply out of credit, by borrowing domestically or by borrowing abroad, or indeed by printing money, uh, would cause inflation, hike prices, and reduce incomes. Moreover, once the war was over, that debt would still have to be paid off. Uh, it would not have been paid out of the current account. So, Ivan Bloch, uh, to take one of the, possibly the most famous uh, anticipator of this war, Ivan Bloch could see that if war broke out, it would be long and indecisive. But as a banker, he also felt it could not happen. Because it could not be paid for, uh, we often read his six volumes as though this is simply a predictor of what is to come. but of course, his overwhelming conclusion was it would not become, but it would not come because Europe will be deterred from it precisely because it will be unsustainable. The second structural and more professional uh, uh, reason for the expectation of a, uh, of a short war is this: the divergence. Um, that existed structurally between what I've just described which you might describe as you know the economist's view of future war from uh, the soldiers and sailors view of future war. Um, There is a structural problem in every European state in 1914 which is the challenge of how to get the military experts to speak to the economic experts and vice versa so that you can actually produce a coherent strategy for this sort of war. The younger Molke confronted this problem, was aware of this problem, um, (coughs) from at least 1912 onwards. Um, And he wanted to have a a, a discussion with uh, Clemens uh, von Delbruck, um, who was the Minister of the Interior. Was he a von Clemens? I can't remember now. Anyway, doesn't. We'll We'll worry about whether he had an aristocratic honorific or not uh, another time. And somebody here will correct me anyway. But anyway, he was very keen to to speak to Delbruck uh, in order to address exactly this issue. But his problem was that Germany lacked the organisation, the the structure, which could enable the coordination of civil and military planning unless the Kaiser uh, took the initiative. Um, And of course the Kaiser... Uh, is not well known uh, for his coordinated approach to long-term planning. Um, Indeed, in 1914, only Britain, through the Committee of Imperial Defense, could get close to that sort of coordination. But even the Committee of Imperial Defense, although a cabinet subcommittee designed exactly to address the problems of Imperial Defense, and by implication, therefore, the possibility of war, uh, was to some extent structurally hamstrung. Structurally hamstrung because it was only an advisory committee of the Cabinet and structurally hamstrung because it became a football between the competing rivalries of the Admiralty on the one hand and the recently formed Army General Staff. It's important in the British case to recognise that in 1914 the army had only had a general staff for ten years um, and therefore it was not really properly bedded in, which is precisely why there is so much civil military confrontation during the war. The problem for all governments was that army general staffs, which had largely come into existence after the Prussian victory over France in 1870-71, were bureaucracies which had acquired size (coughs) and had acquired a monopoly of professional military wisdom, but had yet to find a settled place within government. No government, including that of Britain, yet had a way of incorporating professional military thought, which included the recognition that the next war would be long, into coherent policy. So a failure of communication was more frequent than effective coordination. But this then leads on to the fatal ambiguity in professional military judgments, which in turn could undermine their more realistic, that is the the more realistic military wisdom on strategy as a whole. And which provided evidence for those optimists who were anxious to record, uh, to read the runes in selective ways and to hope against expectation that the next war would be long general staff education in staff colleges um, and that broadly speaking had taken root before the establishment of general staffs as bureaucracies general staff in staff colleges st- general staff education in staff colleges was shaped above all by a selective view of napoleonic warfare napoleon's campaigns remained a basis for instruction right up to 1914 uh, and they underpinned, of course, the thinking of the two founding fathers of modern strategic thought, uh, Jomini and Clausewitz. Napoleon's achievement had been in the views of French officers, for example, like uh, Jean Collin, uh, who himself died uh, during the war, uh, a, a, a general, a serious student of Napoleonic warfare. Uh, Napoleon's achievement in the judgment of, of him and others had been to fuse manoeuvre with battle. What Napoleon had done, in their understanding, was that he had planned his movements so that he could bring his enemy to battle, so that he could concentrate mass on the decisive point, and so that that battle would itself be decisive. So what happened in this ideal world was that short campaigns culminated in triumph on the battlefield the Napoleonic Wars were not, in this interpretation, understood as a long, wearing out struggle. Largely because for many states they weren't, um, except for Britain and France itself. For Prussia, Austria, Russia and others, they were a series of independent wars, ending at Marengo or Austerlitz or Jena, uh, or even Waterloo. So the Napoleonic Wars, insofar as they were studied, could become examples of short wars, a model for short war, quick manoeuvre leading to decisive battle. To be fair to Clausewitz, um, although like his contemporaries, he had put battle at the heart of his thinking, he had stressed that what mattered about the battle, which he described in attritional terms, not unlike a First World War battle, it's well worth reading that chunk in Book 4 of Clausewitz on battle because it absolutely captures how you might see a First World War battle. Uh, although he'd seen it in those terms, what he was concerned about was not how it was brought about, but its exploitation. He described manoeuvre not as leading up to the battle, but as what would happen in the aftermath of the battle, the pursuit of a broken enemy. It was that that would give the battle its decisive quality. But that, significantly, was not how he was read, by most military thinkers in the late 19th century. They simply stressed his focus on battle and bringing the battle about. The determination to cleave to that model of warfare, a best-case scenario read from an idealized version of what had underpinned the major Napoleonic successes, was only confirmed by the German wars of unification. They too were short, they see; they too seemed, of course. In the case of 1870-71, this this assumption uh, needs to be clarified and indeed challenged. But they seemed to be ended by a decisive victory, um, and the soldiers uh, were slow to observe that they also ended for other reasons. In other words, specifically in 1866 and in 1871, Bismarck was determined to contain their fallout, uh, the political control of the battle to that extent producing of course a notorious confrontation between Bismarck and the Elder Moncker, Uh, Bismarck was determined to control the battle uh, rather than to let it lead on to another one. In that respect of course he was dramatically different from Napoleon who had seen one battle as leading to another, Um, a point that Clausewitz made that the dynamic which Napoleon created meant that he couldn't ever stop with the decisive battle or the decisive campaign. Now, from 1890, another Delbruck, Hans Delbruck, Professor of World uh, History, of course, it's always good to be a Professor of World History. Global history has its themes, you see, even in the 1890s. Uh, Professor of Global History in Berlin challenged this narrowly military view of war and reclothed strategy in a more obviously political context. His model, also derived from Clausewitz, postulated two sorts of war a war of annihilation ending in a dictated peace, and a war of a more limited sort ending in negotiation and a compromise peace. Um, His analysis stretched back to Pericles, uh, to the classical world. But in more modern times, he took Napoleon as the model of the first, of a war of annihilation ending in a dictated peace, and Frederick the Great as the model of the second a war ending in negotiation and compromise. And he called Frederick the Great's strategy a strategy of attrition, a matel strategy, of wearing the enemy out in a protracted conflict, which in Delbruck's interpretation deliberately shunned battle. This is what he reckoned Frederick the Great had done in the Seven Years' War. The historians of the Prussian general staff were outraged um, and dismissed Delbruck's argument. For them, Frederick was the precursor of Napoleon and had, like Napoleon, sought decisive battle, as Napoleon had done. Uh, And the nice thing about this, of course, was it meant that Napoleonic strategy owed everything to its German roots. Now, the point here is twofold. Of course, like the others who anticipated a long war, Delbruck used the political context of a future war not the specifically tactical or operational context to anticipate a long war rather than a short war. And secondly, the furore which the debate caused showed just how intense was the professional military desire to deliver on the short war illusion. Um, The idea of a dominant and decisive battle became so important to the historians of the Prussian General Staff that they were ready not only to take take on Delbrook, but of course to feed that into their own staff histories. So the message for armies about the probable uh, length of a war became muddled, muddied and confused. If the military message about the possible length of a war was mixed, so was the naval one. Now when I talk about the possibility of long and short war in a naval context, I think we have to confront the arguments that Nicholas Lamberts produced in Facing Armageddon. Um, I'm with many naval historians who would argue that his reading of several documents is self-serving and selective. I'm also wary of his tendency to argue that if there is no paper trail, the absence of evidence could be construed as evidence that serves his argument. But I think there is a real value in the distinction he makes between two forms of economic warfare, especially as developed by successive directors of naval intelligence at the British Admiralty before the First World War. The first of those two versions of economic warfare stresses the desire to deprive Germany of imports, so as slowly to strangle Germany, initially perhaps of raw materials for warlike purposes, and then increasingly of food. Um, and indeed uh, there is even uncertainty it seems to me in the Admiralty thinking as to which is the priority. Um, The raw materials for military purpose being self-evidently contraband, absolute contraband and the food uh, being conditional contraband because it could be destined for civilian use. This version, the blockade, became the principal method of naval war but its effects were inherently slow burning Maurice Hankey as Secretary of the Committee of Imperial Defence at the outbreak of war and in due course of course Secretary of the War Cabinet was its big proponent, uh, at least continuously in the corridors of power within Whitehall. But he recognised the danger. Britain might win the war in the long term if it applied its naval and maritime and trading strength to cut off Germany uh, from world trade. But if it did that it was in danger of losing it in the short term, especially if the French army was overwhelmed in the field for lack of direct military support. Britain, in other words, had to wage war as it must rather than it might want to. It had to wage an economic war over the long term because that was its principal strength, but it had also, as it found by 1916, to create a mass army um, so that it didn't lose it in the short term. It had to give France the support it needed uh, in order to make sure it had a continuing foothold on the continent. The other version of economic war says its target was not goods but the financial system itself. By attacking what had become a globalised system of trade, centred on London, dependent on the gold standard, Uh, largely financed by the City of London, and much of it was carried in British bottoms, Um, by attacking that system, you would directly attack German trade, and so disrupt its global interconnectedness. The Allies, uh, it was argued, could cause panic on the stock exchanges very quickly, simply by the fact of British participation in the war. As a result, credit would dry up, prices would soar, and there will be domestic turmoil and even possibly revolution. This argument, as Nicholas Lambert deploys it, says, and I think he's right, that it would result in a short war. There would be domestic collapse. In 1914, that expectation was not just one shared in certain quarters in the Royal Navy, but it was reflected much more widely in France and Russia if Britain came into the war. De Castelnau, uh, the Vice Chief of the French General Staff in January 1914 says if Britain's in this war, it will be a short war. Um, and it will be a short war because of Britain's naval and maritime power. Uh, and you find exactly the same debate going on in Russia. Um, Russia feels, wrongly, uh, that because it's, in inverted commas, a more backward state, more heavily dependent on agriculture, less dependent on, on its trade and its industry, uh, will actually have the capacity to sustain a long war and then argues that if Britain comes in, we'll in any case have a short war, Um, that 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 is uh, at least, it's not a coherent thought, but that at least is reflected in some of the debates. So the argument here is that if Britain is in the war, British naval power will ensure not that the war would inevitably be won in the long term, the blockade argument, that it would be won in the short term because German credit will collapse. Now in the first half of his book, Nicholas Lambert argues that it is the second plan to which the Admiralty was committed, not the first. Uh, But he almost entirely loses sight of that uh, second plan in the second half of his book, which is almost exclusively uh, on the application of the blockade in the first sense. Um, This is where I think I would part company with him because it seems to me his argument that that distinction between those two sorts of economic warfare was not clear in naval thinking and was certainly never accepted as the basis for a coherent war plan to put alongside the war plans of the Army General Stask. Uh, the inherent ambiguity of what the Navy was arguing was precisely what caused the Committee of Imperial Defence to panic on the 23rd of August 1911 during the course of the Moroccan crisis. Um, And I'm sure you're all familiar with that debate, but at the height of the crisis, when the Committee of Imperial Defence meets, um, uh, Henry Wilson, (coughs) representing the Army General Staff, has a very clear plan uh, as to the deployment of um, the British Expeditionary Force in France, uh, to the point of knowing about the railway timetables and when the ships are going to sail and all that sort of thing. Uh, Whereas the Navy, uh, through... Uh, his, um, his uh, the other Wilson, through Arthur Wilson, uh, is able to, uh, uh, is only able to argue about, uh, uh, about um, amphibious operations uh, in the Baltic or on the German coast. Um, what concerns people um, is indeed the lack of naval planning and the need to create a naval general staff. Um, but I don't see in that much evidence that the navy is putting forward a case for a short war based on the collapse of the financial system. Uh, It's absolutely true, uh, as Nicholas Lambert says, that many recognized the lack of wisdom in assaults on the German coast or on Baltic islands. Um, But Churchill, um, as the incoming, subsequently incoming uh, first Lord of the Admiralty, keeps the idea of amphibious assaults alive in the thinking of the cabinet. And even if economic warfare became the Navy's preferred option, it was not clear whether its priority was financial collapse and a short war or the throttling of German trade leading to Germany's slow defeat for lack of resources. Indeed, as I've already said, once the war broke out, the focus was almost exclusively on the latter. um, And I can't see much evidence that it goes to the former. And there is a further ambiguity in naval thought. What was the relationship in naval thinking between economic war and naval battle? Was economic war really the end of maritime strategy, the aim of maritime strategy with battles if fought only the means to tighten the blockade? There isn't much evidence for that. Jutland after all was not fought whatever the Royal Navy's been saying in 2016 to end or maintain the blockade. Uh, Or was economic war, simply a means to an end, the end being the need to bring the German Navy to battle. This version, as on land, means that the decisive battle could be the payoff, that battle, not economic war, uh, could be the payoff, and of course the result of that is that the sooner the battle happened, the sooner the war would be over. So, there is ambiguity. By the ed- winter of 1914 15, there had been a number of major battles. The Battle of the Marne, the Battle of Tannenberg, the, battle, uh, the Siege of Lemberg, the Battle of Sari Kamish. Uh, but none was decisive. At sea, the battles were not so major Heligoland Bight and earlier 1915 Dogger Bank. But none of those was decisive. It can be argued that the idea of the decisive battle had disappeared from warfare by 1914 but that armies and navies had still not entirely abandoned the hope that a decisive battle might take place. Indeed to some extent in 2016 armies and navies have still not entirely abandoned the notion of the decisive battle. 1916 after all was to be marked by battles Verdun and the Somme which were no longer defined in time and which both ended inconclusively. War was now explained by continuous fighting Uh, and that fighting, not manoeuvre to avoid battle or manoeuvre to bring battle about, became the basis for attrition, for the wearing out fight, for exhaustion, a means for a long war. Battle had become indecisive and protracted and so was bent to the end of attrition and fighting on land and the economic war at sea became two sides of the same coin. When we talk about attrition, it is too often simply put in the context of the Western Front without recognising that wider economic uh, and maritime dimension. The long war assumption and the reasons for anticipating it looked vindicated. Over the Christmas and New Year period of 1914-1915, statesmen and politicians on both sides of the line reflected (coughs) on these points and adjusted their thoughts accordingly. Famously, Lloyd George, Churchill, Hanke wrote memorandum rather than talk to their families over the Christmas period, uh, anticipating what they would do in the next year. And in Germany, Clemens von Delbruck and Bettmann-Holweg's uh, private secretary and confidant, uh, Kurt Riesler, uh, began to make similar points. This need to adjust thinking in 1914-15. The question they confronted now was: what did a long war mean? Long, after all, is a relative term. Nobody could afford to pace themselves as though they were going to run a marathon when the enemy might decide to run a sprint. Uh, The war in the end was shorter than a seven-year's war or a 30-year's war or even the hundred-year's war, Um, and shorter in some readings uh, than the Second World War or the war in Afghanistan. Um, And so it could be seen not as a long war at all, but as a short war. But nobody had a timetable in 1915. Nobody thought, as the Allies fought in the Second World War, precisely when the war might end. What the longer war assumption meant was that states had to think coherently about the conversion of industry to wartime production. Uh, They had to uh, manage manpower. They had to get an effective division in manpower between military needs and production. They had to sink money into the capital costs of creating a warfare state. The idea of the long war was essentially a point about the management of the economy, about the preconditions for waging a long war, not about the bringing war to a c- conclusion. So the long war idea was a mean, about a means to wage war, not a way of ending the war. And that therefore begged the question of having converted to a long war, had converted your state and your economy to a long war, how would that long war eventually be won? And here we come back to the arguments which underpinned the long war expectation before 1914. Those elements, three elements, which I thought underpinned uh, the expectation of a long war. Could those be reversed in such a way that they would create the conditions which would shorten the war? Uh, And let me take them in the reverse order. The first, of course, is the tactical and technological means of fighting. Could you actually invent new systems or develop new systems which would themselves break the tactical stalemate? And here, of course, gas, tanks, aircraft, and improved artillery come into play. But even in 1918, where new technologies and new tactics had evolved, and where they are, broadly speaking, being combined on the battlefield, the outcome, in terms of the war's conclusion, was more ambiguous than many traditional military historians would allow. Germany was still fighting in France in November 1918, And its army had not been annihilated in the sort of terms which Clausewitz uh, would understand. Second, could the national will be broken? And the answer by 1917-18 was possibly, um, as war weariness set in. In 1914-15, propaganda uh, directed against the enemy had little effect because national resolves were still strong. But by 1917-18, France, Italy, Russia were all showing the strains of war. Before then, both sides targeted weak links to foment revolution. Uh, In the case of the British and French empires, Germany targeted Muslims. In the case of Britain, uh, Germany also targeted the Irish in 1916. In the British case, uh, they targeted, as far as the Ottoman Empire was concerned, the loyalty of the Arabs. Revolution became a weapon of war. And by 1917, Germany was ready to smuggle Lenin into Russia and the British to fund uh, the Social Democrats in Germany. And by 1918, Britain was ready to support the United States in backing the independent, independence movements of the national ethnic groups of the Habsburg Empire, especially on the Italian front. And the third issue was could allies, new allies, Be won over to change the alliance balance and that was actually where the major effort went especially in 1915 one more state on either side could it was increasingly believed tip the balance most realized the war could not be won in short order but argued that one more state could be enlisted in the war to a decisive effect so that the war could be won let's say in the next six months by next christmas or by next year In 1915, Italy, Romania, Greece, Bulgaria were the states to be won over. Those with long coastlines, especially Italy and Greece, were susceptible to Entente pressure. Those close to the central powers were susceptible to their pressure. In the end, each state made its decision individually and at different times between 1915 and 1917. So there would be no bandwagon effect to one side or another. And the upshot was that the entry of all those four states to the war, three of them on the side of the Entente, was not in itself decisive. But it was the acquisition, or potential acquisition as an ally, of the world's leading neutral, the United States, which did determine the war's length and helped define that war more accurately. Have well, I got two or three more minutes? Just to talk about US entry. The First World War had pulled the United States out of recession in 1914. And economic growth happened largely on the backs of Entente orders. The US tried to maintain trade with the Central Powers via the border neutrals, as Nicholas Lambert shows, especially for 1915. But the whole thrust of the blockade was to stifle that trade without alienating the United States. By late 1916, the Allies had been successful in. Uh, cornering the United States' money market, and in getting the United States to invest its uh, assets and, uh, of course, the commitment of large sectors of its population in an allied victory. Um, And, uh, as a consequence, of course, had effectively cut uh, US uh, money and resources uh, from getting into Europe and Germany. Germany knew by then it could not win a protracted war, and indeed it had known that from the very beginning, Uh, that is Stigfurster's point. Its operational planning was predicated on two conflicting assumptions, that of the elder and younger Moltkes, that the war was likely to be long, especially if Britain uh, was in it. And secondly, that Germany could not win a long war, and therefore it must try to win it in short order by dint of operational virtuosity. That is precisely what had underpinned Schlieffen's thinking in his war planning up to 1905, and it was precisely why Germany needed to win in short order, because the next war was in danger of being very long. In late 1916, Germany faced exactly the same conundrum as Schlieffen had faced before 1914. Um, At the end of 1916, it used the overrunning of Romania um, as the partial victory on the back of which it could launch an effort for a negotiated peace settlement. It used to be said that that German offer was a cynical ploy to clear the path to unrestricted U-boat warfare. It was a way of saying to the United States that we, the Germans, tried to get peace, but the Entente would not play ball, and so we have no choice but to increase the war's tempo and intensity. But German historians, and here in this country, Holger Afflebach among them, now argue that Germany's offers were genuine, were truly intended um, and were indeed a reflection uh, that they could no longer aim to fight a long war. The corollary of the failure of Germany in December 1916 and the failure of Woodrow Wilson's efforts to mediate uh, meant that Germany had to make one last effort to win the war in short order and so Germany took the entirely logical step given the situation in which it found itself of risking war with the United States, precisely because, as everybody knew, not only in Germany, but in the United States itself, uh, the United States' army could not be effective in Europe till 1919. It simply wasn't big enough, or well enough equipped, or sufficiently trained to do anything before then. And if the war was still going on by 1919, Germany would have lost it anyway, or so it reckoned. So courting a war with the United States, so often castigated as crazy, became entirely sensible, given the German imperative to win the war as quickly as possible. The real problem in German calculations in early 1917 lay less in its determination to risk war with the United States and more in its failure to think through the full implications of waging a U-boat war and its possible effectiveness. Here, it was guilty of a selective focus on the best possible outcomes. By the same token, once the United States was in the war, the Entente could, for the first time, be certain that it would win the war eventually, and it could even put an end date on when that would be. It would be in 1919 at the earliest, and possibly 1920 at the latest. Its worries also remain the same, that it might lose the war in the short term. It might lose the war because of the effects of unrestricted U-boat warfare, especially on food supply. And it might lose the war because of internal collapse in one of the major belligerents, specifically, of course, Russia after the revolution. But they were also worried about France and Italy. Uh, War weariness might take effect before the military logic would be carried through to its conclusion. And the persistent fear remained that the Germans would use operational methods, as indeed they did, on land, as in 1914, to cut through the ineluctable logic of attritional warfare. The March-July 1918 offensives confirmed that fear, that the German army was still a potent force. And the belief that the German army was still a potent force remained entrenched in the thinking of the general staffs right up until the end of the war. The thesis of Meg McRae, whom, whom I supervised, uh, on the, uh, the, all this from the perspective of the Supreme War Council brings out these themes. In the end, the Supreme War Council's calculations would prove wrong. The war was not won after June 1919, when the United States' army's strength in Europe was expected to peak, but in 1918 itself. What had happened in the expectations of when the war was, would end is that the Supreme War Council had inflated the strength of the German army and had failed to allow sufficiently for the degree to which domestic war weariness in Germany had eroded that army. It had also so focused on Germany and the Western Front as the centre of gravity of its operations that it had failed to realise the devastating effects of other factors uh, on the state's morale in war. Just as the acquisition of allies was elevated as an objective in 1915, so did Germany's progressive loss of allies undermine its continued confidence in the war's eventual outcome. It is worth observing that the central powers ended the wars individually and successively rather than simultaneously and as an alliance. Austria-Hungary is already making its intentions clear in 1917 and Ludendorff famously cites Bulgaria's seeking of an armistice at the end of September 1918 as the precipitant for his decision to seek an armistice. So the First World War, far from being a long war, actually ended sooner than anybody in 1918 had expected.